just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Podfluence. Today, we are covering a topic that is really at the heart of everything I created this show to be about, and that is the art of persuasion. It is very hard to come across guests who are real experts in the world of persuasion, and yet my guest today is truly that, and that makes me very lucky as a persuasion and influence-based podcast to be able to introduce my guest to you today. For anyone who's ever had challenges communicating with their family, persuasion skills can be really important, not just for you, but for everyone in the family, that if you can all find better ways to communicate with each other, you're going to have better, healthier family relationships. And my guest and I talk about that somewhat here as well. Other topics that are going to come up in this episode are things like language landmines, those triggering words that can sometimes mean different things to different people. How to communicate with people who have polar opposite opinions. Shouldn't we be able to have conversations with people who disagree with us, maybe quite vehemently disagree with us, without it resorting into a shouting match or personal abuse? Having active empathy, which is something we talk about during the show, and transcending the divisions that we have in society and often in our closer relationships with people. Even things like dealing with gossip in professional situations, like if there's rumors flying around about you that are not particularly favorable, something that my guest herself had to deal with in her job, you'll see here how she dealt with that and how you might want to as well if that is a situation you've ever found yourself in before. My guest is called Lee Carter. Her book is called Persuasion, Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter, available both on Amazon Kindle and Audible, and I can highly recommend it. It's my hope that you will enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So all that remains for me to say is, enjoy the show. Welcome to Podfluence, the podcast for business coaches and professional speakers who want to build audience and authority through podcasts. Here's your host, international coach and speaker, John Ball. Welcome to the show. I am a very lucky podcaster today because I'm getting to speak to an author of a book that I have absolutely loved reading. And I read a lot of books about influence and persuasion. And I often find that the new ones that come out are usually just regurgitations of things that have happened before. This one is not. This one has some new content in there, some stuff that I really wanted to get that is really helpful to anyone who has a business, anyone who has a brand, and to anyone who has customers who they want to have a better relationship with. Let me properly welcome to the show, first of all, though, Lee Carter. It's great to have you with me. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. I've been 
very much looking forward to speaking with you for the reasons that I just laid out there. And more besides, the book is fascinating. And I definitely want to get into some of the stuff that you talk about in there because you don't know what to expect when you start reading a book about persuasion. And it's like so many of them have been just the same old things repeated over and over again, or maybe just put in different ways. But you are writing from professional experience and from clients who you've worked with to help them grow their influence and be more persuasive. And I think people are really going to look forward to hearing about that and definitely going to want to hear about the importance of empathy and persuasion. And we're going to get to all of that as we go along. But I want to start off by asking you, who is somebody for you who you look up to, who you respect and admire for their influence and persuasion and how they have gone about using it? There's a few people in my life who have really, I think, shaped my view of persuasion. One is my aunt. She was my grandmother's sister. And I always found it amazing that she could change the way that she was talking about what she wanted based on the audience. So she and her husband were very, very different. I always saw the way she was able to navigate, getting him to buy into a change in decorating that she wanted to do that he might not want to do. And then I've noticed in my family, there's a lot of those kinds of dynamics, a lot of people with strong opinions, different opinions. And the way to get your way or to change people's mind is generally by speaking softly in the language of the other person, not loudly in your own language to try and change somebody's mind. It almost never works when you're trying to push really hard to get your point of view across. So that was something that, that always shaped me early on. And the other is about, oh gosh, it was about 17 years ago, I heard Frank Luntz, who was one of the founders of my firm, speaking at a conference about the impact of language on the 2004 election in the United States. And I thought it was just so fascinating to think that it's not just your policies or your positions, it's how you express them and articulate them can really galvanize your base, change the way people view you. And it was something I'd always believed in, but to see it in practice and laid out that way was just something fascinating and it felt like I, it's something I always wanted to do. So you lay out some of this in your book because you talk about how you were able to predict just by how persuasive particular candidates were the result of the election of Donald Trump. And you, you have, regardless of your political opinions, like you had that, like, no, he's got the persuasion thing down. And you were able to see those sorts of things. And I know there's the... A subtitle of your book is Persuading When Facts Don't Matter. And I think anyone who's gotten into influence and persuasion knows how important the emotional side of things are, the connection side of things really are. And I think a lot of people forget that. They think the facts should be enough. The data, the information should be enough. And this is something that, that you talk about a lot. And I think even in, in the examples you've given there, it's like you're suggesting that the emotional side of that is particularly important. But I wonder if you can t tell us a little bit more about where you first started to recognize that emotional side of persuasion and what drew you into wanting to work in that area. Yeah, I think I've always been fascinated why the language that you choose and you use changes the way you view something entirely. When I was growing up and I was in high school at my family's dinner, we always used to have these different kinds of conversations and we'd have to come prepared with a topic. And so I would come to the table and say, what's the difference between a nerd, a geek, a dork, and a dweeb, and a loser? If you looked at it in the dictionary, they all sound exactly the same, but each one of them makes you think slightly different. It's, each one of them has a picture that's just a little bit different. And then we would discuss the nuance. And so we often think when you go out there that you're just, if you say this, get your point across by communicating, the words you choose have a huge, huge impact, right? 
it makes all the difference. So I've always been fascinated with that. And then our firm at Ms. Lansky and Partners is the firm in politics that started a lot of shifts in perception based on language. So it used to be called global warming. Now it's called climate change. People used to debate whether or not the weather was getting warmer, whether it was what it was. Once you talked about climate change, it changed the conversation entirely. Now we're looking again that climate change has been completely politicized. And so it's almost time again for a refresh in that language. And so we're seeing people now start talking about more extreme weather and what we need to do to try and hold that back. And it becomes less political. Um, also know the difference between things like the estate tax and the death tax. An estate tax seems something like, oh, who cares? Those poor wealthy people on the hill, they can afford extra tax. A death tax seems something that we're all going to have to face. It seems very unfair, a tax just for dying. You can change the way people view things by the way that you talk about them or the way that you frame them. Think about the difference between used cars and pre-owned vehicles. Same thing, very different outcome in how you perceive them. When I started to learn that this was a discipline, I thought, oh my gosh, how amazing that you could spend your career helping people communicate more effectively. And our whole philosophy, it's not what you say that matters, it's what people hear. And our job each and every day is try to find, there's many ways you can talk about an issue, your company, your product, yourself. There's only one that's really going to have the impact and drive the results you're looking to find. And our job is to find it. And so in some ways, you almost have to suspend your own beliefs and get in the, into the mindset of your target audience in order to really persuade them because it's never going to start with what you want to say. Yeah. There's, there's a thing that people always teach in public speaking skills, or certainly the good public speaking trainers teach it, of that the most important conversation in public speaking presentations is the conversation that's going on inside the head of the audience, not the one that you are necessarily having them. And I think this is sort of along those kinds of lines, right? It's about how you are being perceived and the thoughts that you're eliciting with people rather than what you actually perhaps want to be putting across like the meaning of the information is what's being understood rather than what's being intended. That's absolutely right. When you think about so many of the conversations I have with clients or people who are trying to understand how to persuade start with, well, if people only knew X, Y, Z, then they would know you're a good company, a good product. But people are, aren't rational beings who occasionally behave emotional. People are emotional beings who occasionally behave rationally. So we really have to understand what it is that they're feeling in order to try and engage with it. It's a very different thing to come from because a lot of people say, okay, if I want to persuade someone that they need to behave more responsibly towards the climate, they need to understand by 2030, XYZ is going to happen. I'm going to go through a laundry list of facts. But that's not how we process. Facts aren't going to change my heart, my mind, because you have your facts and I'll Google and I'll find my own facts that are going to contradict yours. So you said yeah. by 2030, I found one that said by 2040. So who cares? And it's just not going to work that way. But if instead you say, do you love camping? Do you love sitting outside by the fire and looking up at the stars? Or you try to find a place where you can connect with someone about the wonder of the planet. And most often you'll be able to find some. And you can say, do you want to be able to do that with your children and grandchildren? I think let's make sure that we start working to ensure that those areas are protected. Do you want to go fishing with your kids or whatever it is? I find most people, even those who deny climate change, will say, you know what? I don't do it. I don't do it for the outdoors. I do it for the outdoors because I do love the outdoors. And I want to protect that and make sure that generations to come have access to all of these things. And you can start changing the conversation 
But it's not going to be by saying, do you know if you keep going the way you're going, by 2030, we're going to be underwater. That just overwhelms people, scares people, put them in anxiety. And isn't, it might even make them fight back. And that's just right. not the way to engage. It's really by trying to go into their emotion and find that connection point where we can both agree. I think that's one of the things I did particularly enjoy in your book is that you really do talk about how you can, how we can start to communicate across what seem like great divides of very polarized mm. opinions these days. And that we have to essentially use our skills and our understanding to try and get into someone else's model of the world and their language and what they're understanding by things because it's very i think we've seen this many times and i've seen this in certainly in personal development events that we often will hear the same words but have completely different meanings attached to them and again i know this is something that you talk about in the book but can you just tell us a little bit more about like the different understandings of essentially the same thing that seem to separate people oh absolutely there are words that you can find i almost call we call them language landmines sometimes people call them trigger words but there are words that can be heard entirely differently based on what you believe to begin with. So, for example, we're just talking about climate change. Climate change to somebody who is on board, it is obvious. It is truth. It is 100% happening, and we need to do everything we can to stop it. So they hear climate change, they don't get triggered. When you talk to people who haven't necessarily gotten on that sort of environmental engagement curve, and they're sort of somewhere over there, they hear climate change as political. And it's not that they don't believe that we need to do right by the planet. It's what they think is climate change means to them things are going to get more expensive. There's a sense of unfairness because we can do everything right in our country. But then if you look over at what's happening in China, it's unfair. They're already struggling to pay for their bills. So yeah. you're going to tell them they're going to have to change everything. Things are going to get more expensive. They also hear people who believe in climate change hate people like me. So that's a movement for somebody else. Once you understand how they view that, then you can start communicating with them. And it's almost like breathing. We say it's like in with the good air, out with the bad. It's like in with the good language, out with the bad. How do you exclude from your conversation any language that's going to be triggering or polarizing? Almost any debate, you can find this. You can also find the same thing in corporate messaging. There's certain narratives that exist out there that, that get triggered. So one of the narratives that a lot that's out there is that companies put profits before people. And so when you start talking about raising fees or doing something like that or corporate executive compensation, if you're not careful, you can end yourself square in the middle of it, a huge problem because everything that you say is going to be held underneath the scrutiny of those narratives. So it's really important when you're communicating to an audience with somebody who has a different opinion than you, you understand what baggage exists that they believe about you. Is it that you put profits before people? Is it that you judge people like them? Is it that, you know, um, things are unfair? Is it whatever that is, you need to understand what that is really deeply so that you can avoid any language that's going to be that kind of language that creates a social media land fire of, that you see all the time. Yeah. And is this generally something that people don't really get unless they've done some work with some with an agency like yours or with somebody who's been able to come in and highlight these particular things into a to a company yeah one of the things that i found over time and a lot of people now talk about the importance of empathy which most people think about it's just putting yourself in the shoes of your audience i teach it as something that i call active empathy because we all have the ability to have empathy i mean 99 percent of us have the ability to have empathy unless you know you've got 
narcissistic disorder or some other kinds of things like that. Most of us can have empathy, but we have natural empathy for people who are just like us, not for people who are different from us. And so if we are trying to communicate with people who are different than us, which, by the way, is most of the time, we have to suspend our own beliefs and put ourselves in the shoes of the other, not just in why they're doing what they're doing, but in three different categories. So to me, active empathy is made up of three different places. The first is emotional empathy, which is why do people feel the way they feel? Now, there are certain feelings that we have that are really good feelings, whether you believe in God or not. Some would say they're God-given emotions. Others would say they're biological emotions. But they all serve a purpose for us that's really, really important. Even things like fear. Fear indicates it's like you got to get out of dodge. Anger indicates there's a problem that needs to be solved. Joy indicates it's something that you should continue to be doing. When somebody feels any of these emotions, it's really important that you understand them. And when you're communicating, you need to know what you're tapping into. Any of those biologically good feelings, and even the ones that we might say are bad feelings, are okay. But if you stop into what is called inhibitory emotions, and this is all based on something called the change triangle, inhibitory emotions are shame, anxiety, and guilt. If you make anybody feel shame, anxiety, or guilt by trying to persuade them, you're never going to win. They're going to either bury their head in the sand or they're going to fight back. And most persuasion strategies, when you're talking about important things, whether it's politicized or whatever else, you try to persuade somebody by saying, you've got to know this. Or if you don't act now, it's going to be too late. Those feelings, shame, anxiety, and guilt, is exactly what you're putting in them to, and it's going to backfire. So you've got to make sure that you understand how they feel currently. And when you're communicating to me, what emotions are you making your target audience feel? Yeah. The second... Sorry, I, I, that. I just wanted to say, I, I can think of a very specific example of that in my own life where I was asked, some people were talking about astrology at a lunch and I don't really believe in it. And I was like, I was like how can you believe in this? It's crazy. It doesn't really make sense. And they just got very defensive about it. Whereas I know now if I just asked some questions and been a bit less accusatory or, or like shaming or guilty, this is stupid. How do you believe in this stupid stuff? We would have been able to have a useful conversation about it instead. So sorry there's, to have interrupted you there. I've been looking forward to hearing the second part. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it that, and, and you can do it without even meaning to do it. It's when you believe something so strongly, you can say something that makes people feel so bad about themselves that there's no way you're going to persuade them. And you see it in politics all the time. And it ho often happens when you're preaching to the choir and you think that's just going to change people's mind. It doesn't. It can just really alienate them. And it goes beyond just you know, it, it, how you feel, it also can go into some other categories of things. The second category is to me really about why do people believe what they believe? And Jonathan Haidt has this great thing called the moral foundations theory. In it, he says, everything that we believe is based on certain moral foundations. And so there's these things that are just core and essential to why we feel the way we do about issues. So the United States when he talks about Republicans and Democrats, he says Republicans' primary value is often liberty versus oppression. So what that means is you'll often hear a language of freedom. We have right to. And there, nothing to them scares them more than the government taking away those rights and freedom. Democrats' primary value is harm versus care. We have to take care of everybody else and we put ourselves second. Care comes before everybody else. So in really, really tragic circumstances like what we're doing, what we're looking at in the states with school shootings, you're Republicans saying, we don't take away the guns, right? We have to put more safety in schools because we have a right to bear arms and nothing scares me more 
than taking that away. Whereas you'll hear the Democrats say, we can't afford to let this happen to our children anymore. You must not care about kids. You put yourself before people. What's going to happen there is they're never going to agree because they're going at it from a different perspective and talking about different values. If you want to change somebody's mind, and what's going to have to happen in this country if we want real change, is people are going to have to change their minds one way or the other. And that means we're going to have to understand the value that you're trying to talk to in the other person to get them to change their mind. Otherwise, you're just going to go head to head with them constantly. And do you see, and any, then, pa- do you see any path to being able to bridge that kind of gap between the polarization other than on a sort of case by case individual level? It does sort of seem like that polarization very strong in the media, which I think maybe goes on to reinforce a lot of the division between people, maybe. There's no doubt about it. The environment that we're living in, with both social media being driven by what we like, what we engage in, the stuff that engages us is the stuff that makes us angry. The stuff that gets ratings on the news is the stuff that gets your heart rate beating so quickly. It's why sometimes it's like, I just need a break from the news for a week. I'd rather bury my head in the sand because we're constantly just getting agitated. We do see occasionally there are people who rise above it all who just transcend and give us hope. Now, you think about the way Obama in the United States in 2008, when he ran, he ran on hope and change. He transcended and made us all believe in something greater. Those kinds of leaders and those kinds of, I would call them persuaders, are able to make real lasting change because they rise above it so that it's not just about it being black and white. You're right. You're wrong. But it takes some discipline and it takes a certain kind of a communicator. The other thing is, It takes fortitude because when you're somebody who's willing to compromise right now, you're seen in some ways as weak. People say, how dare you compromise with those evil people on the other side of the argument? Compromise is what's the key to forward because we've never seen any huge sweeping change happen all at once. When you look at the civil rights movement, if you look at gay marriage, if you look at anything that required real change in how people viewed the world, it happened incrementally. So we've got to find a way to get excited about small victories and take credit for that. And I think people are hungry for it. I've tested so many different messages with different audiences to try and understand what's it going to take. People are tired of it. There's got to be a better way than the way we're doing it right now. But it's going to take somebody who's got a lot of fortitude because, again, those ratings and the social media clicks and everything is driven by emotions that aren't necessarily good. I can absolutely see that and probably agree that it's really going to take some powerful leadership to make massive change. Whilst I do think there are things mm-hmm. we can perhaps do in, a, on a small, in our own small ways to help improve those conversations and to be less polarized in life and to bridge the gap. I speak to people all the time from all sorts of different political persuasions because I'm very aware that it's very easy to stay in your own bubble and people have their beliefs very often because of the environments they've grown up in and the traditions and the things they've been brought up to believe in not because they've made a decision in their adult life necessarily it usually follows on from that what you've essentially been I guess programmed with from a very young age that all the decisions or the voices you hear or the stuff that makes us who we are and our background is our identity. And it can be very hard to step away from that. And I guess people do feel threatened if anything is sort of treading on what they identify as being part of who they are. And it happens even within families, right? It used to be that most families were the same politically 
and religiously. And now we're seeing as the world's changed, that's not always the case. But what sadly happens with a lot of families is instead of trying to understand each other, they'll just say, we'll suffer through Christmas. And we won't talk about anything that's divisive. But then there's families where you'll be, you'll make incremental change. Now, I come from a family that's mixed of evangelical Christians and hardcore Democrats and people who are ace atheists. I'm married to a Jewish man. My my stepsister was married to a Muslim. It's all, we've got everything going on. But everybody keeps showing up as who they are. And what's happened over time is that the conversations that we've had have all shaped us to be more open and more accepting. But not every family does that. Not every family is willing to say, a lot of people try to change who they are to show up at the table to avoid conflict. Sometimes you have to have the conflict make change happen. You can't be afraid of it, but you have to step into a place of understanding and say, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I believe you're a good person. I know you're a good person. And if you start with that as the baseline, you're going to be much more successful in conversation. Yeah. Looking more for what we have in common than for our differences. And I can see that in my own family dynamics. Like my family are quite religious, well, my parents are, but I'm not. And uh, and so I think initially when we started to talk about some of that stuff, it got a little bit, there was a bit of friction and sometimes some challenges, but now we've learned how to be with each other. So I think it is important to understand sometimes this stuff just takes a bit of time, but you do have to have the conversation. And I could have just pretended that, that I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and not say anything and just go along with whatever. But I couldn't really do that and be my authentic self. So, you know, I can see so much of this. I'm sure I'm sure a listener to the show as well can recognize parts of their own life where they maybe see that and that authenticity. I do want to get into talking with you about how very often it is that the perceptions that people want to have are not always the best ones to have. And then you do talk about this in your book. And I thought it was very interesting that sometimes the bank wants to say that says they want to be more like apple and like you like, no 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 that's not what you should be i'll let you tell us a bit more about that yeah i mean oftentimes we do start the conversation with our own aspiration when we're trying to persuade about a product or a brand or who we are and there was this period of time where every one of my clients would come to me and say okay we need to be more innovative and i want to be like apple and you're thinking okay you're a bank the last thing I want for my bank is to be innovative. I don't want an innovation when it comes to my money. I want security and stability when it comes to my money. If you're going to innovate on ways to make things better, it's not about talking about innovation. Because I hear innovation and money, and I'm not that excited. Similarly, I have a lot of pharmaceutical clients who are like introducing something to the market, a brand new heart valve, a different way of treating cancer. And they want to say it's the most innovative treatment that's ever come down the pipe. And people are going, do I want to be a guinea pig? Do I want to be have the most innovative heart valve ever put in my body? That's a scary proposition. What I want is a safe heart valve. And I found in one project that I did, I thought this was fascinating, is that in healthcare, you can talk about something being breakthrough a lot more than you can talk about it being innovative. Because if you talk about something being breakthrough, it can be safe. So people will still say penicillin was a breakthrough medicine, and it's a breakthrough medicine today, even though it was built in the 40s. So breakthrough can be safe. It's something that sh- it's game-changing. Innovation can also be risky when it comes to talking about healthcare. So you've got to understand how do you articulate what it is that you want to be. We also worked one time with, with a technology company who very famously had a lot of problems with a software release that they, that they put out in the market. And so they spent years innovating to try and fix it. So when they went to go 
launch their next product, they want to talk about how innovative it was and how amazing it was and all the bells and whistles. And all anybody heard was, you're the company made that thing that didn't work. I want nothing to do with your innovation. So what they had to do was say, wait, you want us to have a campaign about this? Is, we've built this technology that just works. That's not at all sexy. But that's what people needed to hear in order to want to do it because what they didn't like is a technology that just didn't make sense, a thing that they couldn't find, a thing that didn't work properly. They wanted something that was intuitive that was going to work seamlessly with their workday, not create more work. And it's so interesting. Yes, it took them years of innovation to get to that place. So that's what they were so excited about. Totally, that would have been the wrong way to talk about it. And I always go back when I think about this to Steve Jobs' most real famous announcement about the iPhone. When he talked about the iPhone, he could have talked about the years of innovation that went into it, the number of megabytes of storage. He could have talked about all the technology, all of the engineers, all of the ingenuity that happened to it, but he didn't do any of those things. What he did is said, you're going to get three things in one. The internet, the phone, and an iPod in one, and it's going to fit in your pocket. Such simple messaging. He didn't go out and talk about innovation. He talked about something that was really transformative in the most simple way that we could all understand and be like, well, I want that. And sometimes that's what you have to do. Instead of trying to talk about how crazy it was to get there, you've just got to speak the language that says, get somebody to say, oh, I want that. Yeah, I think I, I can see this for myself. Like when I first started a podcast, I think it was about to, probably about two and a half years ago when I first started my show. And I was trying to be so clever about things. And I wasn't even really thinking about um, making things connect with an audience or actually giving them what they want. I was just kind of like, I'm just going to do a show about what I want to do and how I want to talk about it and be clever with my show titles and stuff like that. And knowing, knowing what I know now, I know that that was horrific for things like search engine optimization and or even, right. just any, even just anybody having a clue what the show was about, which is why I ended up changing the name of the show just to make it that much clearer. All right. You know, it's gone from speaking influence and at the time people are listening to this, it's now called Podfluence. It just gives a bit of a clearer picture as to, all right, I have a sense already about what that show is going to be talking about. So I already know whether I'd be interested or not. And these are just things that I never even took into account. But that empathy thing you talk about of actually just thinking about who is the end user here and what are they looking for? What are they going to connect with? Not what you want them to connect with, but what are they actually going to, what do they need to be able to trust you or to want your product? That the thing that they need to hear. And if you can get that, that's magic. Total magic. You know, we just went through an exercise in marketing in our own firm and we were listing out things that you could do with what we call language strategy. So it's like language strategy to position a product, language strategy to rebuild reputation, language strategy to, and then we were having this conversation about it all. We're like, no one's looking for language strategy. They're looking for how to position your product in a crowded marketplace, how to break through when people don't know who you are, how to turn people's opinions around. We've got to reframe things in the language of the other person. It's not about what we are. It's about what they're looking for. We're meeting a need. And yes, we have a point of view on it, but we're secondary to everything. And so what you're talking about is exactly right. I think you can write your list of what it is that you want to say, but it's really important to go through a framing exercise. And often what we do, and when we start talking about what we want to say, if you're thinking about, and you're a podcaster and you're listing out your episodes, you're going to start with a list of what it is. But what you should do is take that list and say, okay, what does that mean to my target audience? 
And how do I translate that into a benefit for them? What are they going to get out of listening to the show for 30 minutes to an hour? What is the benefit to them? What are they going to take away? And you're going to find that you'll totally change how you describe things. Yeah. I mean, I just recently went through a whole exercise of retitling episodes to do this kind of thing and to make it very clear what people were going to be taking away from the episode. And whilst it was a bit of a long and arduous task, it was absolutely worthwhile and totally necessary to be able to have that better communication with people. I wonder, I mean, you are someone who does a lot of media appearances and you're even a familiar mm -hmm. face on some of the news networks. So I wonder what sort of things you hold in your own personal arsenal, I would say, of tips and tricks that help to make you more influential and persuasive in your own media appearances. You know, I think when I first started doing media in 2015, I had to be so prepared, and I always recommend being prepared, it's not to say that, but I had notes that were pages long. I had background documents, and it was going to be for a seven-minute hit on television, but I went in with everything under the sun. I had a laundry list of facts. I was ready, and it made me talk too much and have nothing memorable. So what I tell people is if you're going to go out there Talk about less with more impact. Make sure you know what points you want to make. Yes, do all of that research. But it's very much like that quote, if I had more time, I'd write a shorter memo. Yeah. Make sure you distill it down so you know the three things that you want people to leave with from that segment. It makes all the difference in the world. So I might have pages and pages of notes, but what I'm going to have is one page that I write in big letters with Sharpie pen. These are the three things I want to keep coming back to. And once I have my topic. And you know that this is something that works. Because so if you think back, and this it doesn't just apply to media hits. This isn't everything. If you're going to give a big presentation, if you're going to try to close a sale, same thing. What are three things you want them to remember and know exactly what it is so that you can close out with it? And so I even find if you look back at political campaigns, almost every one, if you look back at the tagline and the signature policies of what the politician wants, the one that won had fewer than the one that lost. Yeah. It takes a lot more discipline to come up with fewer things. And so that is, to me, one of the biggest changes that I've had to make over time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as much as I think everyone is very aware, at least politically, of all the three-word slogans that you will often hear, especially I'm more familiar perhaps with UK politics, although we do see a lot of the US stuff as well. But three-word slogans are incredibly In common. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. And, but, but you know, the, the UK is a bit of, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this, a bit of a mess at the moment politically as well. There, there's a lot going yeah. on there. But the three-word slogan things, we're all very familiar with them, but they're still very powerful, even though we know that's what's being done, that power of three thing, that thing that just stays in your head, those things of having stuff that's actually quotable i think far too many people do a lot of media appearances and are not memorable or they'll say a lot or they have this just want to share all my knowledge i'm just gonna do a huge knowledge dump here and take away whatever you pick out of it rather than just having right let's make sure you have these takeaways and that i make it as memorable for you as possible and something else that i got really really good advice from a network executive early on of this he said you're going to go on a lot of different shows and they're going to tell you in order to be successful, you need to go hard right or hard left or try to shock. 
let me tell you what you're good at. You're good at helping people understand what they don't understand. So every time you go on air, you show up helping somebody understand what they don't already understand. That is your mission every time that you show up. And I think if you have that kind of a filter, what is your purpose? Everything else becomes so much easier. What is your master narrative? What do you want to be known for? It serves as a filter for how to narrow those things down. And any, anyone who is trying to become a thought leader or an expert, you should be able to answer that question. What is my thing? Yeah, I particularly like, I just want to come back to you, but I particularly like a lot of the elements of us really helping us to understand how you can use persuasion skills in your own life and also where we perhaps don't do such a great job of communicating because you talk about some particularly personal examples about how this affected you in your own organization where you were being mm. misunderstood and misconstrued and you recognized that you had to set the record straight in a way that wasn't going to be like super defensive but it was actually going to be like no I'm just going to have to be a bit more authentic and vulnerable here with you all yeah you know when you're dealing with a misperception and this happens all the time whether people think about you in the wrong ways so if you're a leader that people don't don't look at in the right way if you're a company who's being misperceived if your product is misunderstood if you're trying to change the mind of somebody Often the first step in communicating about it is acknowledging the concern of the other person because it gives them permission to listen to you. So a number of years ago at my organization, we had our first 360 review. And for those of you who have ever been through them, they're very, very painful. They cause a lot of anxiety. And oftentimes you get feedback that can be somewhat surprising to you, especially if it's not something you do on the regular. So the first time that we did it, I got feedback that was really, really tough. I mean heartbreakingly tough. Some of it was kind of easy. It was like, we want you to be more of a thought leader. I can deal with that. It was one of those pivotal moments in my career where I was switching from being a practitioner to a leader. And that's often a really tough time in your career because you're, you're going from being one of the team to trying to lead and you haven't yet yourself understood what that means, but your perceptions have been shifted. So they wanted me to be more of a thought leader. They thought that I was really good at what we did, but they didn't see me as a leader. They saw me as more than more of a friend. I was really good at bringing in new business to the firm, and many people thought that I had used my looks and some other pretty terrible things to bring business into the door. And there was just some really tough stuff in there. And I remember taking and sitting with this feedback. It was devastating to me. For anyone to think that I had slept my way into to getting business was just horrifying. And I spent a couple days sitting with the feedback. And I talked to my husband about it. And I was like, I have two choices here. I can either quit my job because I'd never want to show up again, or I'm going to have to really do something differently. And my husband was like so angry. He was like, you need to just leave. Get out of there. And I was like, but there is no other job like this. I love my job. I love my company. I love my people. And sometimes I say, if they can't hear you, it's not their fault. You've done something wrong in how you're leading and how you're communicating. So we, what I did was I talked with our CEO about it and he said, look, I've got your back. I'll do whatever it takes to, you know, I'll do whatever it takes to support you through this. And I said, okay. And so on the staff meeting, the Monday after I got this feedback, I stood up in front of my organization and said, I got some really tough feedback and it really broke my heart. I heard that you want me to be more of a thought leader. I heard and I listed out some of the things. And then I heard 
that you think that I'm really good at bringing business in the door, but you don't know where it comes from because people are filling in the blanks with, I'm using my looks or I, or even worse, you think that I'm sleeping with clients in order to get the business. And I had done some real thinking about why that was. And I had a client who pretty, in front of a lot of my team members one night said, we had last call at a bar after, after focus groups. It was late at night, as you often go out with clients and your team. And he looks at me in front of my team and says, so Lee, do you want to have another drink? I was like, what was last call? He's like, how about you come up to my mini bar? And it became this joke at my company about Lee and the mini bar. But I didn't know how to deal with it. So I said, look, I know there's this ongoing joke about Lee and the mini bar. And I, I've laughed along with it. But I've got to tell you, it was so hard and heartbreaking and hard for me. I didn't know how to make it anything but funny. But it's not funny. It's been hard. I said, but I'm not going to make those jokes anymore. I'm going to ask you not to either. I said, but if you're curious about how I bring in new clients, I'm happy to teach you. I'm going to roll out some training on some new business. Everything changed from there. There was like this softening because they saw the human side. And I was really emotional. The way I'm talking about it now is not the way I was at that moment. Because it, was, it really was hard. But if I had never stood up in front of my team and said, I've heard you. I hear your concerns. This is what they were. And I'm going to move to change them. It wouldn't have reset because I could have showed up and started doing things differently, but people wouldn't notice. It served as a reset moment. And through my vulnerability, it gave permission for us to have a reset. It gave permission for people to have conversations with me about things that they never would have before. Everybody understood what was happening. And I think sometimes it's hard when we have a reset. People don't want to acknowledge concerns. They don't want to apologize publicly because they're worried about it. They don't want to say, be vulnerable. But that sometimes the only way to a reconnection is by gutting there and going to the place that's hardest to go. Yeah, I, I love the story and I really appreciate you sharing that as well on the show. And I want to I want to ask you, what was the inspiration for you in, in writing the book? Why did you feel it was important to get this out there? I've been doing what I do for a long time now. And there's certain themes that I kept seeing over and over again. Clients making the same mistake, leading with facts, speaking their own language, not understanding what was happening. Then in 2015 and 2016, as Donald Trump was going through the primaries and he was going through the presidential election, to me it was very clear why he was winning. Most people were like, oh, he's." a lot of people are saying there's no way he's ever going to win. He's a baboon. He's a this. He can't string two sentences together. You know, that's never going to happen. Hillary Clinton is so established. She's, it's time for her. But as I was watching and testing with the audiences, I saw some themes that were really clear. So I started doing a presentation for my clients. It was five lessons we can learn about communicating from Donald Trump. Super provocative and intentionally so. But it helped people understand what's happening. And then it was like, oh, my gosh. It changed people's view of what to do. So, for example, if you think about it today, what was Hillary Clinton's campaign theme? Most people don't know. Some people say, oh, if you're in the States, they'll go, I'm with her. We're better together. Her official campaign slogan, if you look at the website, was Hillary for America. People didn't know it. Donald Trump, make America great again. Everybody knew it, and he repeated it over and over again. Hillary had 112 policies listed on her website on what she was going to do for America, which is amazing. It started with A, Alzheimer's, and it scrolled on for five pages. Every policy under the sun. Donald Trump had five. He was going to build a wall. He was getting tough on China. He's going to bring jobs back. And we still remember them today. 
So I'm not trying to make a statement that Donald Trump is good and Hillary is bad. What I'm really trying to say and point out the differences is Donald Trump had met his audience where they were. He gave them a message that gave them hope and he gave them something to hang on to. Few things that he was going to do for the country that was going to make it better, according to them. And what that does is it gave them an ability to be ambassadors. Why are you voting for Trump again? He's going to make America great. He's going to build a wall. He's going to bring our jobs back. He's going to do this. And everybody could repeat it. Why are you voting for Hillary? Well, a lot of people would say the first woman president. She's really qualified. But you didn't get the halo of that discipline. So what I realized as I was explaining this to folks is that it really helped them structure their messaging in a much more effective way. And so this wasn't a book about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. It was really a book about how do you persuade and reach your audience in a way that's really meaningful when it's so hard today because sometimes you just don't understand how you're stepping in it. It's People are getting more marketing messages than they've ever had. Forget marketing messages. We're getting text messages and WhatsApp messages and social media tweets. and all. How do you break through in this morass of stuff? And it's really simple. It takes discipline, but not everybody understands it. So that was what led to the book. And I think it, it's really meant to be a guidebook that anyone can go through. There's nine steps laid out. And whether you're trying to persuade someone in your family to change their mind on something like you know gun control or abortion or religion, you can use it for that. You can use it if you're trying to start your own, own business. How do you position yourself? You can use it if you're trying to be a thought leadership. How do you position yourself and what is your story? I can use it if a company or a brand. It's really broad. In the end, there's a workbook with the nine steps you can walk through. And so it was meant to be a tool that was really actionable for people to be able to understand step by step. How do you do it? Yeah, that's great. And it's certainly something that I will be referring to for my own information on a regular basis because I love it when I get great information. As I said, right at the start of the show, there, there are so few books that are in talking about influence and persuasion and yours is, and it's really valuable. I wonder for you, as we start to, to draw our conversation to a close, unfortunately, as much as I would love to carry on talking to you all day, <laughs> I wonder what perhaps other books or resources you might direct other people to that might be useful, maybe in this area, but certainly in our communication and our understanding. Yeah, I tell people a few books that I recommend people dive into in order to understand more on how to understand others. The first is Jonathan Haidt's book called The Righteous Mind. He talks in it a lot about the moral foundations theory, which I talked about earlier, which can really help you understand why people believe what they believe. And it just is so illuminating to me. Another, which isn't necessarily about persuasion, but it is about understanding emotion, is called It's Not Always Depression, which is by Hilary Jacobs Hendel. She's fantastic, but she's one who really helped me understand that change triangle of what are good emotions and what are inhibitory emotions. And I spent a lot of time with her when I was writing my book and trying to understand how do you communicate through. So she's a therapist. And so a therapist has to almost navigate some of these things too. So it was really interesting to try and understand the emotions that you're reaching to others and how do you understand them. Yeah. So I highly recommend that book as well. And then I think one of my all-time favorites too is Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Great. Thinking Fast, I've definitely read the other two. I've yet to, and they're going to be added to my book list. And uh, I just want, for anyone who, for those of you who are listening, I'm thinking, I want to know more about this. And you want to know those book recommendations, the links to Lee's book or, or to find out more information. That's all going to be in the show notes for you. So go and check out the show notes. You'll find all the links to everything we've talked about there. 
One final question for you before we do finish up, Lee. What is your superpower when it comes to influence and persuasion? I think my superpower started actually by a place of insecurity. And so my superpower is really helping people understand what they don't understand, as I talked about that a little bit earlier. But it's about listening more than I talk. Because I was never the kind of person that was going to come out forceful on opinions. I always tried to listen to other people to try and understand what it was that I should believe because I was, and it started out of a place of insecurity, but now it's become my superpower because it helps me sit back, gauge what's going on, and then figure out what's the right place to, to start the conversation. So I think that it's a combination of making sense of what I'm hearing. So I guess a superpower would be super listening. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's a great superpower to have. And, uh, and one we should all strive to be better at ourselves. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And I really appreciate everything that you shared with us and highly recommend everybody to go and check out your book because it's one of the most valuable books on persuasion that I've read, certainly in the last several years, really is one that I, as I said, I will keep going back to again and again. But I do want to say, just as we wrap things up, Lee, thank you so much for coming and being my guest on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for tuning in. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. And certainly I enjoyed that conversation with Lee Carter. I hope you learned some valuable content there as well. If you did and you think others might find that valuable too, please do share the show out with your friends and network. It's really the only ask I have for you from the show. And of course, go and check out Lee's book. I honestly think it's an amazing read. It is not that often that I will rant and rave about books being so good. This book was really, really good. And I think you'll get a lot from it if persuasion is a topic that is important for you. If you're not already subscribed to the show, you might want to make sure you are. Next time, I'm going to start discussing the seven deadly sins of podcasting, something that I have been covering in some of my newsletter articles. And if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, you'll find the link to do that or the links, I should say, to do that in the show notes where you can either subscribe to us on LinkedIn or Medium or Beehive or even through my own website. I hope that you will check out the newsletter and maybe take a look through some of the back issues and see if there are some article topics that you might like to check out. My next guest episode in a couple of weeks is Simon Lancaster. If you haven't checked out Simon before, I know that you're going to love his books. This is where I first found him. He has great books about speech writing, about metaphors, and his book Connect is about being able to connect with anyone, anytime, anywhere, and a lot of great information in there. Simon is an amazing guy, amazing speaker and speechwriter. And you are going to love that. So if you haven't subscribed to the show, I don't want you to miss any of that. So wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, have an amazing rest of your day. Go and make great things happen.